2: Well, look at that. The Montreal Canadiens break a little bit of a skid there and beat the Ottawa Senators, who, rest assured, the rebuild is over for the Ottawa Senators. As we've been told, this is the unparalleled success that we've been assured that they would have under Pierre Dorian. Well, uh, unfortunately, it seems like the 32nd place Canadians were too much for them. And uh, here we are. So I'm going to welcome in my fantastic guests, the entire cast of locked on Canadians, <laughs> Laura Saba and Scott Matla. How are you guys doing?
1: Hey, thank you for having us on.
3: Fantastic. I mean, Laura's fantastic. I, I don't know where I, uh, I check in on that. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I know Laura's got a bit of a headache and, uh, Scott's got lots of things going on too. So we probably won't go as long as we've gone in recent shows where, uh, you know, I went to, over an hour with uh, Dylan wall from EOTP the other day. And I think I went over an hour with Scott and Jared last Sunday as well. And I don't so, so I think Laura, we did probably like 45, 50 minutes when we did it together last yeah, Saturday, it was, it
1: was a reasonable time frame. Yeah. Yes,
2: it was reasonable. We'll try to keep it reasonable tonight as well, but there is a fair amount of stuff to talk about, which uh, somebody says no longer 32nd true. I mean, going into the game, they were 32nd, but they've managed to get up to what is it? 31st now. I
3: mean, here's the thing. The rebuild it's- is over in Montreal, baby. <laughs> Let's go.
2: Yeah. I
1: <laughs> That's all that group. <laughs> <laughs> it might be
3: closer to the truth,
2: frankly. Uh, this team is something else, and I, I feel like we got to start where we finished off on the last show, which is Cole Caulfield. I don't know if there's anything else to say about this kid, but he is just unstoppable, and every game that goes by, The previous coaching staff, I know it's only one guy that's been fired, but the previous regime looks even worse. It is so crazy how good this kid is. And I noticed after he scored tonight that he went straight up to some kids in the audience and you know, he's vibing with the people to same height as him, which is great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Superstar quality right there. I was saying he was hanging out
3: with Chris Weidman's baby this week. He's hanging out with everybody his size. It's fantastic.
1: It's true. He, You know what? Th- this is the thing is that it's a shame because it there's 20 games left. He's got 12 goals now on the season. And had he had an even average first half of the season, we'd be looking at, we'd be asking ourselves if Cole Caulfield can actually score 40 goals like Trevor Zegers predicted. And, you know, I, like, I mean, I I don't even know because every time he turns around, you turn around and you see the points and stuff, people are like, well, he's on pace in an 82 game season to score this many goals or that many goals. I really, really want him to score like, 18 goals in the next 20 games so that he can get at least that 30 goal mark, because it's a shame. Like I really do feel like his rookie, his rookie year was ruined. But I also don't think that he's gonna be the type of player to dwell on that part. Like you can see him thriving right now. And I think, you know, two, three years down in his career, he's gonna look back on this season and he's gonna say, you know, that adversity was there. I was really lucky. I was given the opportunity to succeed under under Martin Saint Louis, and I really seized it. So if he ever has any situation where he's slumping or he's having a tough time or something like that. I really hope that he turns out and he looks at that and he looks at the things that he learned in this season because I think he's going to have a really long career. I hope it's on the Montreal Canadiens. And somebody asked me the other day, uh, do you think he could be a top three player on this team? And I was like, I wonder if he already is a top three player on this team. I mean,
2: since since the coaching change, he absolutely is. There's not much to be argued about that. But Laura, you're so good because you literally brought up One of the things that I had written down as a topic for this show, which is Cole Caulfield that first half of the season. So many people are talking about it as if it's just a write-off and it's a shame that he's not going to win the Calder trophy, but I'm looking at it now and exactly what you said. He's passed through the fire. He's done what a lot of Montreal Canadians prospects have to end up doing. And Some of it's by circumstance. Some of it's a random thing that they have to get over. Some of it is, you know, being left out to dry ridiculously in the playoffs, like Carey Price in 2009 against the Boston Bruins. And, you know, it looked like he was a broken man when he did the post-series press conference, putting like the hat down over his eyes. I don't know if you guys remember that with like tears streaming down his face. But Cole Caulfield has gone through that. You know, Max Pacioretty with the broken neck thing with Zdeno Chara. A lot of the best Montreal Canadiens players, Saku Koivu, have gone something through something crazy early in their career and they come through it and end up being maybe the better for it. And Cole Caulfield has now seen he can be held back and once he gets the opportunity, he's never going to let go. And that, I think, is going to be a huge benefit as he goes forward in his career in Montreal. Because not only did he have that playoff run, where he saw how good it can be in Montreal. He's now seen how bad it can be. And then, oh, this kid's a bust. He's never, the playoffs were a flash in the pan. He's come through that. I think that's going to be absolutely massive for sustaining his confidence. forward.
3: It's wild to me is because there's that photo of him at uh, the rocket picture day. And he is just staring daggers at the person taking the photo. And that was like two and a half months ago. And now he's out there, he's, you know, celebrating with the crowd and he looks reborn as a hockey player. He looks like a child on pixie sticks having the time of their life. Like it's absolutely incredible, like 13 goals on the season, 12 and 22 games under Martin St. Louis. And I don't think he's going to win the Calder unless he goes somehow takes his heater to another level, which I don't think as good as he is. He can do, but. He's going to steal some votes from like Michael Bunting, and it's going to be hilarious. So like,
2: yeah, I mean, he has to get some votes, right? Maybe no first place votes, but if he scores, like, I'm just going to try to do the math here. You guys converse a little bit, and I'm going to do the math of if, if he scores and maintains this pace through the rest of the season, what are we actually looking at for Cole Caulfield? So continue, Scott and Laura, please enable me to do this.
1: Okay, so I just want to bring up something real quick because it was so cute. And then I didn't notice it until like way after and I was watching the replay, but like Cole Caulfield with that face wash on Brett Kulak after he scored that beautiful goal, like this kid has centered himself on this team and he's like, he's just one of the guys now. You know, they always talk about how great he is in the locker room, how much they love him, how he's uplifting for everybody. And everybody needs that person on their team, right? Like that cheerful kind of guy, but the confidence, you know, with those veteran players, players just like getting in their faces and like giving them hugs. Like they used to do to him last year. He's definitely enjoying being a Montreal Canadian. He's enjoying playing hockey again. And I think that like one of the things that was lacking in the first half of the season was overall, the team didn't feel like a team. Every night we talked about how a bunch of people showed up and it looked like they were meeting for the first time before they played a hockey game. And that's changed as well. And I just, I find that the, the fact that, it's night and day is so encouraging because you can't have a team that's going through whatever's whatever's happened. And all you need is the right dynamics to come into play and you'll get the best out of everybody on the ice. Everybody can improve.
2: Yeah. Okay. So and- to not to interrupt your point too much there, Laura, but I did the math. If Caulfield continues at this pace to the end of the season, he will have 27 goals.
1: Wow. Like
2: it's, it's unlikely. Let's say that. It, it is unlikely just because he is shooting the lights out. But his shot numbers are going up as well, along with this shooting streak. So it's possible. Crazier things have happened. Chris Kreider is shooting the lights out this <laughs> season to the same extent that Caulfield has been. But he's done it the whole year. So things like this have happened. If he gets 27 goals, That's he's going to get he gets 25.
1: Votes. If he gets 25. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like 25 and a half a season. A lot of players would dream of 25 goals in a full season. And And he's he's
2: getting as many assists as goals is the crazy thing. Like his playmaking (laughs) is unreal. I don't know if they've changed it or if I couldn't see it properly, but it seemed to me like on Kulak's goal... Caulfield they didn't give him the got, assist. Yeah, he should have got an assist there, I think. Yes. I think he tapped the puck to Kulak. Let me uh, check the uh,
3: NHL it. website here. Uh, yeah. They did not. They gave it to Suzuki and Anderson still, even though I thought Caulfield bumped that puck back in the slot there. Yeah, but. Maybe
2: it maybe it tapped off the Senator's stick instead of Caulfield's stick, and he kind of, like, smacked the stick into it.
3: I'm that's giving him a phantom assist because yes. he deserves that because he's a delightful child. and I. His, I that's the point I was going to make to Laura is that not only is Caulfield shooting so well, he's he's de- he's developing himself as a playmaker. And Jared Booked, we talked about it after the Flyers game, is that sooner or later teams are gonna have to go, do we take away the pass or shot from Suzuki or the pass and shot from Caulfield? And they're gonna have to pick. And more often than not, it's not going to matter because they're that good. Like his his hockey IQ and vision is off the charts. For a guy who is supposed to be known for being able to be a shooter, a, a certain Avalanche blogger once said he might be Mike Hoffman if he develops properly. Oh man,
2: he's got so much more instinct than Mike Hoffman. Like no, well, no yeah, he's to Mike Hoffman. Who I do think has improved a lot under St. Louis. It just Caulfield's play without the puck is so much better. Like it's true. The way he tracks loose pucks, the way he cuts off passes. This is why when he was at his worst during the year, I wasn't really that worried because it was about um, like halfway through the season, not long before Ducharme got fired and people were starting to get like really antsy about Caulfield, not scoring. I went back and I watched the highlights from last year's playoffs and I was like, this kid was a shark. You know, like you, you didn't see where he was on the ice. And then all of a sudden he was there. He was intercepting pucks, creating chances, creating two on ones, creating outnumbered situations down low. He was always on the puck and you just didn't see that level of confidence in him this year. That doesn't disappear from a player, you know? I agree. It's just, he was always going to figure it out, figuring it out to this level so quickly. (laughs) is very funny. That's unheard of, I think. Yeah, it is pretty unheard of, but man, this kid is something special
3: he knows where to be. Like We know that he could find scoring spaces in the offensive zone. That was something he we always knew he could do from his time with the U.S. development team at Wisconsin and then with the Rocket and then with the Habs. And now he's finding the right spots in the defensive zone and in the neutral zone to make other things happen. And I, I'm not saying he's going to be like a Selkie caliber forward or anything, but he's doing enough that you don't have to overly worry about him putting him out there in situations like you can use him as a leverageable situation now. He doesn't need – I don't want to say he could use some sheltering because he still is an offense-first talent, but he doesn't need to be – Mike, poor Mike Hoffman is just the target tonight, but he doesn't need to be Mike Hoffman in a lineup, so to speak. <laughs> like it, It's true. It, and I think playing so with Suzuki
2: will also like continually – put him in situations where he has to develop his defensive game, which I think a lot of his defense is in the offensive zone. You see him like picking off plays while teams are trying to exit the zone. That's like his, his main contribution defensively, but he's not failing to back check. Like there were several times tonight where he was the first guy back, which is, is a normal thing since St. Louis took over. And frankly, I thought that was something that he's been doing most of the season. The effort has never lacked. It's just, confidence was not there and we don't know exactly why that occurred but we can say that he was not handled very well during the first half of the season that's for sure
1: yeah, that's absolutely true. And sometimes it, it just happens that you question yourself. And then if somebody gives you something that could be considered negative feedback, whether he was told anything or whether he was just held off the lineup or put on the fourth line for, I can't even, I, I can't even think about that, but that messes with you, right? Cause then you stop trusting your own instincts and, and the success that he's found, you know, all the way up until he actually made the NHL had a lot to do with instinct. I remember in the playoffs last year, some Toronto fans were like, Hey, this Caulfield kid is actually, you know, having made fun of him for for a year they were like oh he's actually quite scary and I thought they were being sarcastic but if you watch him on the ice just the fact like Scott you said he knows where to be right he was circling players looking for the best position to be in to receive a pass you know or, or or anything like that and I would just watch that and I would be like this kid knows what he's doing way before most players know what they're doing a lot of players will come to the NHL with A level of developed talent, but they won't have that intelligence until they've had a lot more in game situations. Whereas Cole Caulfield, in some of his first games that he was playing in the NHL against some of the best teams in the NHL, he was handling himself really well and just putting himself in the right place. So when he's questioning himself, maybe his instincts weren't that great and that was kind of compounding the problem, right? When he was having his slump.
2: Yeah, I think that's really astute, Laura, honestly. And Uh, pointed out in the chat here, Hoffman has actually tried harder defensively under Martin St. Louis. He's still not good at it, but at least he's trying more. (laughs) I totally agree. I do think his effort level is like monumentally improved under St. Louis. I mean, that's true for most players, right? When you go from a situation where there's just no hope to a bit of a clean slate and playing for pride, a lot of guys look better
3: admittedly the bar was the floor for Mike Hoffman yeah. in terms of effort on defense, but they are correct. He looks better. However, like the bar, you know, a, a newborn child could have crawled over the bar at the worst points of this season. But yeah, I, I, even tonight, like we talked a lot about Yola Mia. This is one of the first games in a while that I've seen. I've been like, there's the guy who got that three and a half million dollar contract. There was the effort tonight from him and I'm like, maybe he knows he's getting traded, and he wants to look really good. Which, thanks. Um, where was this the rest of the year? But it, I, I, I know we we say this every time that one of us on the show. But this team's entirely different with Martin St. Louis on the bench. They're not perfect by any means, but the, they look so much more put together and everything that it's it it makes me wonder what the hell they were doing under Dominique Ducharme. Like I don't. I don't know what to say to that.
1: I'm quite excited to see what he does with Jonathan Drew to be honest, that's something where, you know, obviously a much has been made of it. Like he's excited to play under St. Louis now and, and all of that. And and I don't, think he's getting traded. I don't, you know, there's a lot of talk all the time about uh, teams wanting Drouin or he would have a better fit on another team and stuff like that. I don't listen to that all that much until it happens, right. If, and when he gets traded, but he talked about being excited to play under Martin St-Louis and I'm excited to see because I think that Jonathan Drouin has on ice intelligence that is often really, really underrated. And I feel like Martin St-Louis can really drag that out of him.
2: I I really don't understand why people are still shitting on Jonathan Drouin as I just
1: watching (laughs) social media a
2: little bit tonight, looking around at what people are saying. It's his first game back from injury and people are already like, oh, I didn't notice him. He's invisible tonight. Well, here's the thing. Like Jonathan Drouin is one of the only guys who actually played to his potential under Ducharme this year, and he missed time with injury, which kind of threw him off a little bit. Sure. But overall, I thought he's had a really strong season coming back from, you know, ridiculous mental health struggles. It's been a tough one for everyone, but I thought Jonathan Duran has been a leader this year. I thought he's been a guy who didn't give up. I do think St. Louis, I don't know what his plan was, but it seemed like he had three lines that he liked and then he had. Hitlick, hoffman and drew left over and he was like i guess i'll just put them together and see how it goes it didn't go well because all of those guys are really bad defensively and they just got caved by the senators but i think once i don't know once things settle down after the trade deadline maybe it looks a little bit more like he can find spots for those guys if they're all still here uh, that are more complimentary but I think all three of them together is just a recipe for disaster so I understand that none of them played well tonight maybe like Pitlick was the most noticeable because he's always in the middle and seems to be noticeable all the time but the people who are so keen to jump on Jonathan Drouin, I I don't get it what is wrong with you
3: it's because he was that big trade p and it, it's it's always going to be well mikhail sergachev won two stanley cups and we needed a defenseman and jonathan Joanne got hurt a lot and didn't live up to his potential i'm like you mean the one year that they made him play center for some reason and then he got hurt he was playing well and then ovechkin buried him and he got hurt and he was out for most of the year and then last year he started hard, hot got hurt and then he went through his mental health struggles and then this year he started and played well on a team that was hot garbage. Okay. And then he got hurt and players get hurt. What are you going to do about it? I mean, Tyler Sagan cross-checked him in the neck and then he was out for a while. Like, I no one ha, is able to have a reasonable expectation for him because of who he was traded for. And I think that's really unfair is that we're, what, five years removed from that trade now or something? Like let it go like just let it go and analyze the player as they are could he probably have a higher ceiling yeah but the canadians are still as well as they're playing a 31st place team right now with rem pitlick as their second line center that's (laughs) not exactly what you would call prime development and roster building like i they can't just they I understand not wanting to break apart Suzuki, Caulfield, and Anderson, because that's been working. And why break up what works? And you don't want to put him with Dvorak, who's taking all the defensive minutes, so it's like, what do you do? Um, I think Druen is eager to like prove himself and play well. It's just frustrating. Which it's his first game back from injury, too. I'm not gonna judge him based on that, especially in the game against the Senators, where it's usually Chippy, not very skillful hockey. After a couple of goals go in on either side, so like, I I don't know. People people really let Jonathan Drouin ruin their entire day and make it their entire personality and just touch grass and go to therapy or something. I don't know. Like, please just get get a grip a little bit, just just a tiny bit, like a little bit of sanity is all I'm asking for. Yeah, too much
2: to ask for. Yeah, there's a comment here from uh, Canadian Mark says it's not Duran's fault that Bergeron didn't re-sign Markov and couldn't find an a- adequate replacement for him. Well, I feel like that everyone on the team suffers from that, right? We've yes. watched the power play stagnate. Markov is the guy that they have not found a replacement for. But I think the biggest issue with how Duran is viewed by the fan base at large and the media at large is that he was sold as a French-Canadian superstar center. And that was never what he was going to be. And if the Canadians had paid any attention to his NHL career whatsoever, they knew that that would not be something that he would do. Yeah. He played a little bit of center in the queue in his last year when he was 19. Like, so he was too good for the queue already. Like, It didn't matter. Lots of guys play center in junior and aren't centers in the NHL. And, you know, Duran, I don't think effort level has ever been an issue for him. You talk to people in the media who go to practices He's always a hard worker in practice. He's credible to watch in practice. He seems like he's got his he's the focus is there. It's just that defensively not everything is quite there. Like he just doesn't make the right decisions. I think he's worked on that a lot. He's still not great defensively, but he's not the disaster that he used to be. And offensively, he's limited by the fact that he's a very specifically a specific style of player, right? He doesn't go to the middle. He's a perimeter playmaker. So you have to find people who he can pass to. Canadians yes. haven't really done a good job of setting him up with players that match his skill set. So I don't know. What that's you not his do? fault. No, that's not his fault. And the fact is he still produced about 50 points per 82 games with the Canadians, which is about what you expect for a four and a half to five million dollar player, which is what he's getting paid. So. I understand that people wanted more from Jonathan Drim, but what you actually got is not as bad as you think
1: right. I absolutely agree, and I don't know because this is at this point when he when was he in the queue like ten years ago um was the queue always a oh uh, highly <laughs> offensive league, or is it just in recent years with like you know the defense being optional and all of that because I know that the queue was very much a a run and gun kind of style, right
2: yeah, the queue is weird because it's definitely a more run and gun league of the three Canadian hockey league. But a lot of the high end defensive forwards also come out of the queue, I guess, because Ooh. they have to play against that. The queue used to be like a goalie <laughs> development league, and that's just gone completely. Like you don't see very many <laughs> high end uh, Quebec, Quebec goaltenders coming into the NHL anymore, but for whatever reason, the, the, the QMJHL develops, you know, high end defensive forwards very well. And, a lot of the high-end offensive guys just don't seem to turn out the way that you expect. I don't know why, but uh, it's definitely something for Quebec to investigate. I don't know if it's a problem of scouting too. It might just be that it's just not as heavily scouted as uh, the, the OHL the OHL, or the Western Hockey League. And maybe they could find more diamonds in the roughs if they look for it. I mean, look at what the Tampa Bay Lightning have done, but uh, I mean something to watch with the Tampa Bay Lightning Total tangent, but people have been talking about that big trade they made for Hegel, right? Where they, two first round picks and they got fourth round picks back. And I saw a bunch of people being like, oh, well, they're only moving down about 70 spots in the draft. So with the develop or the drafting that uh, Tampa Bay has been able to accomplish, you know, it's not a big deal for them. I mean, 70 spots is a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. And also uh, Tampa Bay actually lost the scout that found all of their like high-end Quebec players, eh? He works for, for Arizona now. He's Ooh, Arizona's head of scouting, head of amateur scouting. So look for maybe not as many uh, QMJHL diamonds in the rough coming out of Tampa Bay. There's, you can't sustain greatness forever. So Tampa Bay, as good as they are, might be the first three-peat in the cap era, which would be the first like actual real dynasty. Eventually, things will fall apart.
3: Maybe it's the Habs' benefit there, then. Uh, like, I look at what they did last year, getting Joshua Wah, who has been, like, an absolute steal in the fifth round. Uh, Riley kidney has been really good. And Xavier Simeno seems to be following the same path as Rafael Harvey Pinard as an overager, doing exactly what you expect and then seeing what's from there. And I know with the Canadians, it's always a very different subject a little bit because more people want more homegrown players. And the debate's always been... The people coming out of the queue haven't been as good as the OHL or the WHL or college or the US development program in North America. There's good players, but they're either gone or there's someone better right there in front of them. And I can understand for years why Montreal picked other players. And I look at the OHL especially. It's that nice little middle ground. It's not as defensive as the WHL and it's not as pixie sticks batshit insane as the queue, but it it seems to churn out the most regularly, very good NHL players. It's why wouldn't you go to the biggest source, not just for your own team, but other teams? Uh, it's, yeah, I, I lost track of my point there for a second.
2: <laughs> I know what you mean though, Scott. Uh, okay. Let's shift a little bit here. Cause uh, we'll, we'll talk about the game because, uh, I got us off on major tangents. Uh, <laughs> Jake Evans, how good is it to see guys like him and Armia score after how strong they've been playing lately? Because I know Armia is like the pariah of the fan base this year because, I mean, he's been terrible. There's no way to sugarcoat it. But it was last weekend that he stopped playing the puck and started playing the body, and he's been really effective since he made that choice. I think he's played his best hockey of the year, again, Super low bar, I know, (laughs) but he's been great. And Jake Evans is a guy that every time I watch him, I really like. wish
1: he had better hands, right? Yes.
2: Or just like something is missing there. Right. But like sometimes he he scored maybe the nicest goal of the season.
1: Yeah. Right? Like he's, he's done that in the past too I think last year he scored a really beautiful goal Yes, yeah, so and it was like his one hands. out of like <laughs> I don't know maybe
2: it's just like the connection to the hands like the ability
3: to marry the hands to the speed of the skates the,
1: the controller good- got disconnected
3: <laughs> yeah good skater. But every now and then it reconnects and he scores like an ESPN top 10 goal and you're like where the hell did this come from? He did it against Anaheim. And the only reason no one friggin' remembers is because Trevor Zegers did a running Michigan five seconds afterwards. Like,
1: <laughs> that's true. Poor guy. Like, poor Jake, yeah, poor Jake Evans. But you're right, Andrew, there, there's something missing. But every time you, you watch him, he's giving it 110%, which is the worst cliche to use. But you know, that's what coaches love. You know, that's what hockey people love is giving that, you know, going above and beyond. And he does that all the time. Like, he is such a good caliber bottom six forward in my mind. And he he also, I think, you know, whenever the team is doing bad, whether it's under this coach or the previous coach or the, you know, the previous, previous coach, he's, he's still playing well. He, I think... The thing about Jake Evans is that he understands his role really well is what I find. And that's why, you know, he's not a guy trying to be a top six forward. He's not a guy trying to be an offensive dynamo, even though he sometimes does have the hint. He's like, this is my role. I am a fourth line center. I kill penalties. I need to be smart defensively. This is what I'm going to do. And he does it with a big smile on his face. I love that.
3: And to your point about Armia playing the body, it's and this is going to sound like the potentially dumbest thing I've ever said, but and there's a lot of contenders. Yol Armia needs to learn from Rasmus Ristolainen in that he can use his body because he's gigantic. Yol Armia is six foot four and is built like a brick shithouse. Learn to use <laughs> that physicality because he's just going to hammered guys off the puck if he leverages his body properly. Ristolainen does that improperly because he has three functioning brain cells. and They used all of them to sign an extension with the Flyers. Armia is a smart enough player to know what to do with the puck when he's playing his best. And Like I said, when he's been more physical and uses his body to leverage people off and protect the puck is when he's at his best. That line in the playoffs with Eric Stahl and Corey Perry was a nightmare for teams like the Jets to play against because it's just three guys who are just going to shield the puck from you and keep the cycle going until you're too tired to defend. And then they score a goal. Yo'l Armia is a fourth liner with someone like Paul Byron and Jake Evans, who are all hustle all the time, is such a frustrating thing to play against if Armia is working you along the boards because it's a lot of weight you got to battle against. And then you're tired and then you've got five foot seven Paul Byron sneaking into the slot and you're too tired to catch up to him it if it all works properly and everyone's playing at their best it seems really simple to put it all together that way and I I don't I understand that they trade the old army I do but when he's at his best he's such a very valuable piece for the Canadians when everything is clicking in he's a great uh jack of all trades piece for them but they're not getting that value so far this year. And if he rediscovers that, great. It means his trade value is even higher. And he can go to another team and the Canadians can continue the retooling, rebuilding, whatever you want to call it.
2: Yeah, I would imagine that there's many coaches that have had UL Armia who just think in the back of their head, if this guy was mean, he would be such a player. You know, like <laughs> if he was just a bastard, he would be impossible to play against because he's got Not only the ability to and the strength to do that, he is able to hold on to the puck while hitting people or like just controlling them with his body. And, you know, when he's able to put that stuff together, he has great games. There's games he's played for the Canadians where it's like, is that Ariel Lemieux? And then he goes on a 10 game trip where he does nothing. (laughs) Right. And. It's never rational to see the one game and say, oh, that's what this player is. Clearly, Mark Bergevin thought that. That's where we are today. But uh, I digress. I think Armia is a valuable player, but he's one of those guys where it's nice to have him, but it's a luxury. And for a playoff team that can afford luxuries, maybe he's attractive. I don't know about this year, maybe next year, with the term that he has left. It's a tough sell, I think, in a flat cap. But I, I, there have already been rumors that people have kicked tires on him. So maybe it, it's interesting. I think Monday is going to be really exciting. Uh, moving on from Armia. Also, I mean, Byron scored as well. All three of those guys scored tonight. That's fantastic. One thing, you know, we talked about uh, Scott said controller disconnected, or maybe it was Laura. I don't remember now. I assume it was Scott because <laughs> I assume he was the gamer. But uh, Al- <laughs> Alexander Romanov, who I think has been much better, the last little while. I'm still not sold on him being a part of the core going forward. However, have either of you guys looked at his relative differentials now that he's not playing with Ben Sherrod?
3: Yes, I know what those are. Um, uh, I assume they're better because in all respect to that very handsome draft pick generating machine, um, (laughs) not very good at playing defense. So I assume it's better
2: yeah he's at about like the last three games like plus 30 percent relative in <laughs> expected goals for percentage and he's playing tons of minutes split between cory schoonerman and brett kulak now brett kulak is a great facilitator everywhere everyone he seems to play with does it's really better. well yeah and i don't know if that's just if he's super easy to play with or if he's like really smart or that he just makes plays that enable all of his teammates to make better plays because he's not exactly despite the amazing goal he scored tonight. He's not exactly an offensive dynamo. You watch him defending. He's not the most amazing defensively in the defensive zone. So it's like everything else in his game makes him special. Right. And that's really helped Romanov. but he had that shift on the PK today. The only goal the senators scored. And that was in my mind, not almost good. entirely on Romanov because he lost his stick. And then he just stood there with his arms down (laughs) for like ten seconds, doing nothing. And then when Dvorak finally gave him his stick, he was like, "Okay, I've got my stick. I'm just gonna abandon my position on the left side defense and go over here for no reason." I'm wondering if he
1: panicked because then you looked at him on the ice uh, after—sorry, on the bench afterwards—and I think somebody was showing him the iPad because he was shaking his head at himself. And I think he he literally it looked like he like the the loss of the stick just disconnected it completely. Right. Like he just panicked from then on, like until he got off the ice, it was just going to be a panic attack. But can we just go back to Brett Kulak for one second? Sure. I really love that in the post Ben trade press conference, Kent Hughes said that the Canadians like Brett Kulak. If they get an offer that will blow them away, they will trade him. But they would like to keep him because that, to me, makes me realize that this front office has the right way of thinking. They know what to value. Like Brett Kulak is never going to be a number one defenseman. He's never going to be you know, he's never going to be your top anything. But he's a supporting player that's better than a lot of players in the NHL that play his role. So I think that to me is like, you know, and it's the same thing like I always say, and you've heard me say this before on both of our shows, there's such a thing as a good bottom six player, right? It's not just replacement level. It's the same thing with bottom pairing or lower pairing defensemen. It's not just a replaceable. It's not just you have your number one defenseman and then the person that plays with him and then everybody else can just be crappy. That's not the way it works. So like when you have a guy that is put in the Brett Kulak role and you look across the NHL, you look at all the supporting players in the NHL, he is better than a lot of them at what he does. So you keep him because... If you lose him in the offseason, if you lose him via trade and he signs somewhere else or whatever, you're going to have to find a guy that makes the people he plays with better. And it's so rare to find that in a lower pairing defenseman.
2: You're right. And And, sorry, Scott, uh, the one thing that really stuck out to me about that whole situation with Brett Kulak is how often do you remember in the last regime? Them coming out and saying publicly that they really appreciate a player i remember them um, undercutting alex galchenyuk publicly but outside of like brennan gallagher when he re-signed and bergevin was like crying or like carrie price like outside of the star star players you didn't really hear them talking about how much they liked they appreciated the player. a player you, they you heard bergevin undercut kokaniemi you know several times last year including after the stanley cup final you know like saying like, oh well, we don't know what he is yet This way that Kent Hughes speaks about his players, you look at like how Toffoli talks about leaving the organization and how much respect he has for Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon. These kinds of interpersonal things where they're not burning bridges, you see like Ben Sherratt. oh, I'd absolutely love to re-sign here. Well, let's not do that. But (laughs) love that he (laughs) thinks that. But the fact
1: that he yeah, the fact that he feels good about the way it ended is such a positive.
2: Burning no bridges will benefit you.
3: It's almost like he's a player agent and he knows how to deal with people like and players like this. And to get back to Brett Kulak for one second, it's, and to talk about you know, people being appreciated is that I knew Brett Kulak was a smart player because the Rocket were playing in Rochester in a game. And afterwards I had talked to a few players and he's standing there talking to Byron Frays uh, by the exercise bikes and they're looking over something and they're breaking down an entire power play and penalty killing shift and he's going he's like i had this guy he, he's saying you know i had f1 here and i have this here and they're breaking it down he goes i missed this read here and then you look at it the next game he doesn't make that same mistake again he looks through these things and analyzes them and knows what he's got to do with it. is he flawless no but he's smart enough to pick up and know where he's got to learn things And he is easy to play with because, yeah, he can rush the puck down the ice and occasionally dangle through three guys and score a goal, sure. (laughs) But at the same time, he's the guy that you give the puck to, he gives it to you with speed, and then he changes, and the next group comes on. He's the safety valve of the defense. And so is Joel Edmondson to an extent. Joel Edmondson's not going to rush the puck, but he'll pass you the puck and then get off the ice for someone who will. Uh, And I think that's a really – Uh, Interesting balance there is that I, I don't know what Brett Kulak's future hold. I would love to have him back in Montreal again because someone like Jordan Harris, I think, reads the game a lot like he does. They're very smart and they make the safe, smart play. And then occasionally they do something high risk because the opportunity is there and they see the benefit to it. They don't do it just for shits and giggles. They do it because it's the right play to make. And I think he'd be a really good teacher for those young defensemen coming up before they hit their next stride and start to enter their prime and really, truly grow as an NHL player.
1: I guess, Andrew, there's your answer. Then he's just smart. <laughs> yep,
2: uh, There's a bunch he's of people in the comments guy. as well saying he's just smart. Uh, apparently this is pretty crazy. The NCA just overturned the result of the Minnesota versus Michigan game and are restarting the game in overtime. 40 minutes later, the goal wasn't legitimate in OT 40 minutes later.
0: Was like it Michigan
2: winning
3: for Michigan was winning 4-1. I thought what? Hold um, on.
2: They Apparently like, went to overtime. They have to
1: suit back up in that sweaty disgusting gear <laughs> oh, that's God. like dripping that hasn't even gone through the dryer yet. I mean, 40 oh minutes God. a couple of those so guys angry.
2: might have had a couple beers by now, you know? Like Oh
1: yeah.
2: It's I, that's that's a mess right there. I will I will say about <laughs> <laughs> about what? the whole situation on defense. I think we're going to see Harris pretty quickly here. I think yeah. they're going to sign him and he's going to play out the rest of the season burn that year in the contract. Cause that's what the college guys love to do. It'll be very interesting to see how he fits in. Uh, moving on to the next thing that I had written down, which I'm sure many people will say that this is dumping on him, but I'm not trying to dump on him. Uh, Josh Anderson. One that I had a thought while watching him today is that Josh Anderson plays like all of Max Pacioretty's critics wanted Max Pacioretty to play. I mean that in a bad way. Like, it is the way that Josh Anderson should play, but it's a less effective style. And obviously he doesn't have Pacioretty's release, so he could not play the way that Pacioretty played. But just the way that he plays, it's the same kind of, you know, he's only a shooter. You watch him make like a three-foot pass and it misses by an extra three feet. Pacioretty did that crap too. And you're like, why is he not effective on the power play? Because he's just a a trigger man and you have to find a bunch of setup men for that trigger man plus have a decoy. Yeah, Anderson, I like him. I think he's playing his best hockey with the Caulfield Suzuki line, but still a little bit frustrating to me.
1: Did you notice tonight he had this (coughs) one back check that looks exactly like his forecheck? (laughs) Like he does one thing in both directions. I love him
3: is it crash into the him. end boards because he's very <laughs> very good at that. I love Josh Anderson. I I think he is such a fun player, but he feels we talk about luxury players. Josh Anderson feels like a luxury on certain teams and unless he's gotten a little bit more patient with the puck this year to make uh, better reads, but it's not his strength his strength is you feed me the puck while i am flying the zone and i'm going to turn style the defense and i'm going to rifle this one by the goalie rinse and repeat asking him to play a cycle game is asking the wrong thing of josh anderson if you were taking an offensive zone faceoff and anderson is not getting the puck with speed he should just change for someone who is going to play better in that cycle and we love josh anderson a lot but his limitations are very obvious. His physicality is great. Don't get me wrong. I love watching him throw hits on the forecheck. I love watching him score goals at high speed. Watching him be a part of a, a, a part of a cycle game is like watching someone to, trying to park a one of those giant container ships into a very narrow space. Only they're bad at it. It's just like get move. Just go. Go away and let someone else do this, please. Like I
2: think like he does fit pretty well on that line, even though he isn't a great participant in the cycle game because he opens up space for those other two guys Because when you can get Caulfield and Suzuki's creativity combined with just the, you know, deer, not deer in the headlights, but bull in the China shop. That's what I'm thinking (laughs) as, as far as idioms go. Like if you can get him set up to where he's breaking through defenses and everyone's like, Oh crap, we need to back off. And then all of a sudden you can find Caulfield as the trailer. It, Becomes pretty dangerous, and that's really interesting. I do wonder if he's a long-term solution there, though, just because of his limitations. A friend of both of our shows, Ian Boisvert, says, I saw a tweet once that said, Anderson plays alone, and I think about that a lot. I think before he was on this line, that was extremely true of his game. Something that I brought up last year in the playoffs is when people were criticizing him. uh, Or was it him? No, it was it was Kokaniemi that I was bringing it up that he, they were playing Kokaniemi with Anderson and Byron, two players whose success is hinged on just their own play to themselves, right? right. Like Byron is fly the zone, get a breakaway. And Anderson is a lot of the same, but also crash through 15 people on the way there <laughs> and possibly murder someone
0: <laughs> and then
2: either do the same move where you try to cut in front and miss the net or try to pass and it goes back into your own zone. <laughs> so Kokomiiemi had really nothing to play with off of that. That was my argument last year. But anyway, yes, I do feel that with Josh Anderson, but I think he has more like more simpatico with those two playmakers, those two dynamic young skaters, where he can kind of just be like dad and muscle yeah. everybody off of them.
3: Mm-hmm. He, he speaks a lot to, and I know this is an on ice thing, but the way he speaks a lot to the media about the team and what's going on, especially since Martin St. Louis comes in, I know that he's a younger guy, considering the makeup of the team overall, but he he seems to just know what to say. He's been their first teammates. There's uh, from when they played Toronto last year. Caden Primo got absolutely shelled by the Leafs, and the only one to come up and talk to him during the intermission was Josh Anderson, who a guy who went through his own struggles at the NHL level. I mean, he had injuries and he had inconsistencies, going up and down. There's something about it that works. Like you said, he's dad to Caulfield and Suzuki. And I, like I said, I don't know long term if it's going to work, but something there, when they're not all together, it doesn't feel right, even though Suzuki and Caulfield, I'm pretty sure, could play with anybody on their other wing and probably have some success. But it feels right when all three of them are together. It feels dangerous that you have a guy that, if they're attacking with speed, do you go defend the shooter? the hybrid playmaker shooter or the shooter who weighs 230 pounds and is going to run you through the end boards if you stand in his way. And you've got to make a decision. And most NHL defensemen do not make the right decision in that regard because you have about two seconds or you're screwed. And it's I think
1: that's, that's exactly it is the speed with which they all play together, right? That takes away the defense's ability to do anything about it. And I know you brought it up as a critique, but like the more we talk about him, the more I'm in, like he endears himself to me. Like I love Josh Anderson. He's one of my favorites. It's so ridiculous watching him on the ice, but he's an enjoyable player. You know, I mean, I kind of felt a little bit that way about Ben Sherrat in that I, I knew Ben Sherrod is not good defensively, but watching him was enjoyable. In yeah, the seeing in him put guys moments. in
2: headlocks is never not yes. funny.
1: <laughs> and like shoveling people out of the out of the crease, like on like, like they have no chance, right? So that kind of stuff is in, enjoyable. And I think that Josh Josh Anderson, it's very much like you said, like his his best way of playing, it doesn't compliment anybody else. And that's why you kind of have to use them. What's up? What's up?
3: <laughs> so uh, I have a I have an actual statement about that overtime goal. I know that we are like ten minutes past that, but from the CCHA. So. The CCHA instantly reviewed the Minnesota state goal at three Oh two of overtime and initially ruled the play as a good goal. Additional TV production camera angles made available to the officials provided conclusive evidence that the goal net was elevated and the puck entered underneath the frame. The wow. play on the ice will be overturned and ruled no goal. The ice will be resurfaced five minute warm-up, and they will come back out and play. Could you imagine if the NHL actually had the other angles to like go back and do this? It, I, um, I i would man. like to
2: think that a goal like that wouldn't get past the nhl but this is also the nhl <laughs> so it probably might at some point i I think and that's that's rough that if you're the team that won
1: i'd like, be how, so angry right yeah, now you
2: gotta be so mad and you have nothing really to be angry about <laughs> except for that the officials exactly. missed it because you didn't actually score but that's that's a tough pill to swallow uh there was one. There is a Habs here. angle
3: to that, by the way. Um, if Minnesota yeah, statement, Man- right? Yeah, if Mankato... no, he's not playing. But if Mankato wins, uh, Northeastern will most likely be out. I believe, uh, if I read this correctly. I- I'm scrolling through the EOTP Slack, so. Um, uh northeastern is in if the mankato goal stands if it doesn't they still need minnesota state to win in overtime so if minnesota state loses in overtime uh jordan harris will likely be signing his contract sometime on sunday yeah
2: okay that's
3: interesting how does college hockey affect the habs
2: yeah i mean always there's always somebody to talk about with the habs uh there was also a comment here that i wanted to get to saying that uh and suzuki's chemistry allows anderson to be anderson which i think is a great point I think there's also a, a consequence of Suzuki and Caulfield being so dynamic also kind of makes teams forget about Anderson, which is weird because he's a giant. And then it's like <laughs> when he gets the puck, you're like, oh, shit. Oh, he's out here.
1: <laughs> there's that guy. <laughs> How do it's you miss him? He's six foot four. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, guys, it's Josh. <laughs> hey, guys it's, yes. <laughs> guys, it's Josh. All
2: right. The, the last thing that I had written down here, I mean, we didn't even talk about Jake Allen. We should probably just at least mention Jake Allen because he was fantastic. I'm glad to fantastic. see him back. Oh, man. I'm he, glad to see him back. I don't, like, I, I hate dumping on Montembeau because he's been put in a crap situation and I, he has been a lot better in the new year. But seeing Jake Allen play and how good his mechanics are, it's a refreshing change, <laughs> to be honest. It just... <laughs> it makes things much more calm at the beginning of games when Jake Allen is out there making big stops. And I think his stop on the breakaway with the, from Gaudette when it was three to one was probably the moment the game changed because three, two is a lot different, right? So, but uh, not to stick on Allen, because I feel like there's just not a lot to say. There was one thing mentioned on the hockey night in Canada broadcast from Gary Galley that I had not heard until now. Maybe you guys had, but apparently among hockey men, there was some hurt feelings when Martin St. Louis was hired because he hasn't put in his dues.
1: Why and does that not surprise me? It Shut
2: the fuck up. Like, <laughs> just, I think he has a Hall of Fame career that says that he has. I mean, do people say that a GM hasn't put in their dues when they just hire every former player? I have to say, I love it when hockey men are pissed off and it just makes me like Martin St. Louis hire even more. And the can fact just that talk hockey about- men were pissed makes me confident that, you know, Hughes and Gorton aren't afraid to piss off hockey men.
1: That's, that's another really good point. Like the more they talk and the more I learn about this front office, the more confident I feel as a Canadian fan. But can I just say that every time something pisses off the hockey men, it works out. Like, At some point, at some point, won't people realize that like everything they think is wrong? And I don't mean to shit on people who have played or have, you know, been GMs or coaches or whatever, because I get a lot of that is like, Laura, you've never played hockey. You've never coached hockey. You've never. But here's the thing. Hockey itself has evolved. So when people who are entrenched in former forms of hockey are angry about something, then, you know, it's because they're being left behind and they haven't evolved with the game and they can evolve. Like they can move forward into the future by evolving, becoming, you know, more knowledgeable, changing the way that they approach things and all of that because Martin Saint-Louis played in that era, but he learned a lot since leaving hockey And, and like he had a long enough career that the game evolved in front of his eyes and he just adapted to it, right? Like you have to think about things differently. And that's why it's just like, it never surprises me that the hockey men disagree with something and then they turn out to be wrong.
3: I want to know who in the hockey men said this, because if they were to be in a room with Martin St. Louis talking at no point in time, would they ever look at him in the eyes and go, I don't think you've paid your dues to do this. You're gonna tell a Stanley Cup champion, a hockey hall of famer, one of the arguably, not even arguably the best undrafted player of all time that he hasn't paid his goddamn dues to coach an NHL team. Are you out of your mind? Like, what does he have to do? Run the Edmonton Oilers into the ground? Run the Bruins into the ground? Be utter dog shit on the Sabres for three years. What do you want him to do, folks? Like, what is paying your dues in the NHL? Like, is he going to be long-term for the Canadians? Who the hell knows? All I know is he's paying his dues right now. He took over a team that was not able to complete a breakout pass for about six months and has turned them into one of the hottest teams in hockey right now and easily one of the most exciting without his starting goaltender, without their team captain and number one defenseman, without a good chunk of their lineup, they're still playing a lot of AHLers up and down the lineup here and he's getting results. I don't give a shit about paying dues if this is what he can do with less than optimal circumstances. And the fact that someone does is why hockey remains the fourth most popular sport in North America, because it's so kept at every level, even for a hockey hall of famer, that it's almost insulting to the fans that it's like, well, yeah, you could have this exciting guy or would you like to have Ted Nolan back?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and just John Tortorella. (sighs) 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 (sighs)
1: There's
2: a, there's a comment here and I'm going to layer it into more, but (laughs) somebody's saying hockey men hate short Kings confirmed from rock smasha. I mean, they do (laughs) let's be real. And also, this is probably the same group of people, let's be honest, that told Marty St. Louis that he wasn't going to make it his whole life. You want to tell Marty St. Louis he's not going to do it again? Go ahead.
3: Yeah, and go God ahead. took that personally. Exactly. And yes, he's going to win a Jack Adams and tell someone to go fuck themselves at the NHL Awards next year sorry he's too polite to say that he's going to say for those who didn't think I could do this or something a lot kinder I will tweet out the translation that where he is telling them to go (laughs) fuck themselves because (laughs) that's what I would do in his situation which is why I'm probably not an NHL coach or on hockey night in Canada for that matter but what are you going to do
1: and the thing him is that like he just said he's like all I want is the opportunity to put into play what I've been thinking right it was an experiment for him too like he had an idea of how this would work and how he wanted to be an NHL coach and you know all he wanted was that shot and and the Canadians luckily for us gave him that shot and it's working out right so he was on to something Right. It's not like he said that he wanted a long contract or a high salary or anything like that. He said that part was not important. He just wanted one opportunity. And look what he's doing. Like now I'm thinking of the Eminem song. Uh, but he got that one that shot. shot. One opportunity.
2: Bomber on a sweater already. Mom's forgetting. <laughs>
3: oh my God. Now I'm imagining Martin St. Louis like trying Rapping. to wrap this with like his Quebecois <laughs> accent. And I...
2: bet you he could do it just tell him he can't do it and he'll come back a week later and it'll be flawless (laughs) all right uh we'll probably wrap it up there because uh i don't want to keep everybody too long thank you all for joining us here uh before we close it out first laura and then scott i guess it's going to be mostly the same thing tell everyone (laughs) where they can find your stuff
1: so uh, you can find the podcast, Locked On Canadians. Uh, just search Locked On Canadians. You'll find it wherever you get your podcast. We're also on YouTube. Please subscribe. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at The Active Stick. You can find the podcast on Twitter at LO underscore Canadians. And now I'll leave it up to Scott to talk about all the other hockey things he does. Uh,
3: I don't do much. I am the uh, other half of Locked On Canadians. So as Laura said, please find us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And you can find all my writing and stuff at Habs Eyes on the Prize. With the trade deadline coming up, there's going to be a lot there. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Scott Matla, where I am very sorry in advance for everything else. So uh, <laughs> they gave me a check mark. I don't know why, but they did. So it's all. I am all powerful in that regard. All right, I will close up the show with a little
2: treat for everybody who's still here because I was actually supposed to do this on St. Patrick's Day and I forgot. I just lost my train of thought at the end but my oldest son Dylan wanted to record something while the like before the game was starting on St Patrick's Day because he learned about St Patrick's Day in school Laura and Scott I don't think we'll be able to hear it so they'll have to watch the video after but it's just like a, a minute of Dylan trying to remember what he was told in daycare uh, very <laughs> cutely but uh, here it is Dylan wanted to tell everyone the story of St Patrick's Day. All right. What did you want to say, buddy?
0: You know, St. Patrick's day is is when you celebrate. What?
1: <laughs> you were the one who wanted
2: to tell when, the story. When
0: we celebrate St. Patrick's Day.
2: Yeah. And what does it mean?
0: And it and it means we can have. St. Patrick's Day candy.
2: Oh, is that what it's all about? Yes? Anything and, else that it means?
0: Also, St. Patrick's Day candy is only green. Mm. And and the spring is green.
2: Spring is green. You're right. Spring is green. Are you excited for spring?
0: Yes. And the East, Easter has chocolate.
2: That's for bringing,
0: true. For bringing it People that are doing good behavior and sleeping, mm-hmm. and to make it as a surprise for us.
2: Yeah, what do you do on Easter morning?
0: Yeah, I, I do on Easter morning eat my breakfast very fast and then get the chocolate. <laughs>
2: How do you get the chocolate?
0: I find it first and find my house. And opening it for my elves, and then it has yogurt dots in it. And my eats it all.
2: Yeah. And then and... he
0: asks more for me and then I give him more.
2: That's very nice. you do an Easter egg hunt?
0: And that's called a Easter egg hunt.
2: Mmm, that's pretty fun. Alright, do you wanna say bye to everyone? Bye. Alright, time to go to bed.
0: Time to, time to go to bed.
2: <laughs> Thank you, buddy.